the whole reason I got into music in the first place was because of how it made me feel. And I would sit between a pair of speakers and get lost in the music. And I would get carried away by what I was hearing. And that experience of listening made me want to be a participant. This is Sounds of Berkeley. With us today is Omar Hakim, the new chair of Berkeley's percussion department, who has long been one of the most sought-after drummers on the planet, having worked with many of the most iconic names in music across a multitude of genres. And you're hearing just a small sampling of some of those tracks he has recorded on in the background now. You might have seen him performing the mega-hit Get Lucky with Stevie Wonder, Pharrell, and Daft Punk on the Grammys not too long ago, one of a long list of dance-inducing tracks on which he has handled the stick work. He's also a self-taught music technologist whose drum loops and samples are a popular seller on the loop loft. And now he's bringing his extraordinarily diverse career's worth of knowledge to Berkeley percussion students. Omar Hakim, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, man. It's great to be here. Very happy to have you here. So before you were working with Carly Simon's band in 1980, you started playing at age five, right? And by age 10... You were touring with your father, Hassan Akeem, a trombonist who played with Duke Ellington and Count Basie. So I'm wondering if you have a recollection of choosing music, or was it something that was so part of the fabric of your your world and your life that there was never any question that this is what you were going to do? You know, uh, I think it was that it was totally a part of my world and my life. Uh, The family was a musical family, particularly on my father's side. Um, My Aunt Maggie... Uh, her, his sister, a singer and a pianist, my, uh, my uncle Mel, his brother, uh, an organist, and, and he also traveled with my father's band as a manager, like a tour manager. Mm. Um, I would spend a lot of time at their house on the weekends, and there was always instruments around. So while I was playing drums mainly, I would go over there and there was a guitar that I could pick up or I would sit at the piano with my aunt and sing songs. So there was this sort of very steady and balanced diet of, of musical experience uh, that included uh, different instruments, using my voice, uh, listening to music of all styles. And um, it just sort of shaped my mind and my love for, for music and, and and inspired me to want to do this as a, as a life path. Yeah. Well, that, that variety of experience clearly comes across in the, the multivaried nature of, of the work you've done. I started to allude it, to it a little bit at the beginning, but um, f- for those who don't know, you know, you've worked across so many genres in the pop and R&B world. That includes Michael Jackson, Madonna, David Bowie, Mariah Carey, Daft Punk. It also includes jazz masters like Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis, who I understand was actually the one who recommended you for the the Weather Report gig. That that's you, correct. Yeah, extensively throughout the the eighties, and then you've rocked with Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, Sting, Dire Straits, and Brothers in Arms, which is one of the best selling albums of all time. Country work with Jerry Douglas, hip hop with Queen Latifah. I mean, I could keep going. You've done uh, worked on the score for Malcolm X with uh, Terrence Blanchard. Clearly no one's pigeonholing you or typecasting you. Have you actively sought out different things? You know, I haven't done this yet, I want to do that, or is it just more like being open to whatever comes your way? For some reason, I understood very young that it was important to not be typecast as a drummer and as a musician. 
and I don't know why I knew this, but I just did. I understood that I would almost stop my own growth in a way if I sort of took the position of the specialist in one style or another. Mm -hmm. um, but being a teenager in the 1970s, um, that's not how the music on the airwaves was working. I think that uh, radio got a little more segregated in, in the mid to late 80s into the 90s um, because in the 70s you would turn on a pop radio station and you would hear everything from the British Invasion bands to Motown to bluegrass and funk and rock and roll all in the same station. Mm -hmm. They didn't make a differentiation if it was popular. It was the pop music in America. So it, was, it wasn't unusual to hear the Beatles, the Jackson Five, Sly and the Family Stone, Earth, Wind and & Fire, and Bette Midler on the same station. What we're really talking about is the, the makeup of the fabric of American music. You know, American music is a, is, is a rich history of, of this melting pot idea you know, of this beautiful, diverse melting pot that informs the fabric of American music. So as a, as a kid, I wanted to experience it. Jazz is a part of that fabric. R&B and blues is a part of that fabric. Gospel music is a part of that fabric. Rock music is a part of that fabric. And so as a result, your mind is getting shaped by the musical possibilities that you hear in the air. Right. And that's the way I wanted to live. Uh, Count Basie actually lived also in our neighborhood, a little village called St. Albans in Jamaica, Queens, New York. And a lot of musicians grew up in this neighborhood. Uh, Marcus Miller and I were, were, were dear friends from like age 14. Um, Lenny White, the drummer for Return to Forever. And, so, and, and, and Miles and Freddie Hubbard and, you know, and also a solo artist, he's from this neighborhood. Um, so you had that kind of jazz culture, but also James Brown had a house in St. Albans, Jamaica, Queens. Uh, like I said earlier, John Coltrane lived in the neighborhood, but then there was a whole hip-hop movement that came from this neighborhood. So Q-Tip, uh, Run DMC, uh, Salt and Pepper, LL Cool J, all from the Jamaica area, different villages, either South Jamaica, Hollis, mm -hmm. Springfield. You know, there's so so. This was a really interesting in uh, a neighborhood, uh, in that the the culture um, was taking in all of this this energy that was in the air. And, and everything was a possibility. I just started taking it in. Yeah. That was where I was coming from. Right. You know, it was so competitive in New York that when the phone rang for a gig, you don't say no. You say yes, hang up the phone, and then figure it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? But there's the growth. Right. And so that sort of went along with my I don't want to be typecast as a drummer. I don't want to be typecast as a musician, and I want the community, my music community, to feel comfortable to call me to collaborate with them. Mm, absolutely. 
Well, obviously, a lot of people have have called you to uh, collaborate with them. You have an immense catalog. Um, you know, I've been seeing some of the stuff, not only that's part of your official catalog, but some of the stuff circulated by fans on the internet. Mm. And I was recently checking out a performance with you, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and Stanley Clark from the early 90s mm. in Japan, which was mind-blowing. Um, you've released your own music, your debut earned a Grammy nomination, and then more recently you have um, put out We Are One with the Omar Hakim Experience um, on your Osmosis label. I should tell you that uh, a student who works in our office just played me something the other day. I was like, that sounds really good. What's that? And he's like, oh, th those are Omar Hakim drums. Really? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, and so I wonder, you know, how did you get into that sort of thing? And, and do you, are you excited by the idea that people can take work that you've done in the past and use it to, to build something new? Um, is that something that, that excites you? Or, um, yeah, just what, what are your, how did that come about? Well, it's interesting because uh, when the loop thing started becoming a thing, I was approached by a few companies. And initially, when I was approached, I still had a very busy, busy session career, recording session career. So part of me was was like, okay, well, let me think about this concept. You're saying that I'm going to take my beats and my grooves and we're going to sort of can them and distribute them as a part of sort of a, 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 a songwriter's kit, if you will, mm -hmm. right, to create music. So at, at first, um, that didn't appeal to me. Mm -hmm. but, but then um, the DAW software was sort of in the beginning stages of its, of its development. Um, I wanted to sort of observe where it was coming from. And like I said, I was still busy as a session musician. Now I'm talking late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. right? Um, home recording was becoming a thing. But oddly enough, I was doing home recording before it was a fad. Um, right, you were one of the the pioneers of this, I should I, have mentioned. I, I guess you could say that, and it's odd because I didn't even realize I was. I was just at home having fun with tape decks and cassette decks and, you know, wiring mixers up. And, yeah. you know, a buddy of mine uh, brought a, a Revox A77 two-track tape deck over and another friend of ours, a, a radio DJ in New York named Gary Bird, had a, um, an Otari four-track reel-to-reel machine. So he, when he wasn't using it, he let us borrow it. My, my buddy that I'm speaking of is a guy named Fountain Jones, who is one of the Emmy Award-winning directors right now at CBS Television in New York City. Uh, he's won awards for technical direction of uh, events like the Olympics and uh, their morning news program in the morning. Fountain and I grew up together. And when m our parents, talking about the musicians now, were buying us drums and guitars and amps and you know, keyboards. His parents were buying him Sennheiser 421 microphones and, a, and recording gear. So what Fountain would do, would, he would come to our rehearsals and our gigs and he would record us. And I got fascinated with that gear. Also, my uncle was in the hi-fi equipment. And I used to love to go to his house as a kid, bring my records and play them on his stereo. Right, so I started getting into 
hi-fi, stereo gear, gadgets, and recording as a teenager. And one of the things that happened, Fountain saw I was interested and said, why don't we um, kind of like build a little studio in your basement and you can record some of your song demos. So we borrowed a, a like a TAC mixer from a buddy who was just like sitting in his closet doing nothing. And... Um, connected all this equipment that we had sort of got from different places. He showed me how to, to make cables, you know, solder cables. <laughs> you know, we were, and it was, it was a great kind of way to play. And then I would just like play drums, play guitar, play bass, you know. I, I was, you know, overdubbing myself vocally. And it was just fun, you know. But then I'm learning, like, how to splice tape, you know, and edit. So between the experimentation with uh, the recording and going back to some of the, the stuff you were talking about earlier with, with Motown and this, this melting pot seems to be this common thread running through a lot of your experiences of just fun. And, yeah. and one of the things that, you know, um, I noticed um, going back to your weather report days, Peter Erskine, um, a previous weather report drummer, had told Drum Magazine, he said that you kind of put the fun back into the band. Really? Uh, yeah. You never <laughs> saw that one? I didn't see okay. that. Well, he said that. And, I mean, at Berkeley, of course, we're, we're focused on technical skills and ability, but we're also, you know, I wonder if you could just speak to this this importance of um, this quality of, in making music, of, of having fun with it. You know, it's true. Um, it, it The whole reason I got into music in the first place was because of how it made me feel. You know what I mean? I do. And I would sit between a pair of speakers and get lost in the music. And I would get carried away by what I was hearing. And that experience of listening made me want to be a participant. Right? And, and so in my mind... Because the music made me experience the joy like that, that I wanted to participate in that joy. You know, so music from even though I had some teachers that were pretty serious, I wouldn't let anybody let me lose sight of the fact that this is something that I love and this is something that makes me feel good and it's something that's fun. So my feeling about it was to always stay connected to that feeling. Very important for me. If it's not fun, I will put the drumsticks down and get on my bike and go for a ride or stop what I'm doing and go to a movie, you know, because, because really, while it is important on one hand to learn the technical aspects of what we're doing, instrumentally, vocally, you know, uh, and dealing with technology that, that, in, in the way that Berkeley does as well. You know, we're, we're putting all of this information together so that we can go out into the world and make our contribution to music and, our, and the culture. But it's got to be fun, man. You know what I mean? We've got to be connected to it in a way that's sort of beyond the technical and beyond the intellectual because it's got to speak to our soul in the end. You know, really, 
when we're learning music, actually we're just simply learning another language. That's what we're doing. When, what happens when you learn a language? Well, you learn the, the grammatical and phonetical rules of speaking, right? You learn the numbers and the, the, you know, the vowels, and you learn all of that. And the end result of putting all of that together is so that you could sit in the restaurant and kick it with your friends, tell jokes, relate to each other, discuss what happened yesterday, today, tomorrow, my dreams, my ideas, my concepts, my thoughts. We're not thinking ABCs and one, two, threes and rules, and we're just talking. But we started out learning certain rules of language, right? Yeah. Grammar, phonetics, whatever. Music is the same way, right? We want to learn the rudiments, the tradition, the history. We want to build that vocabulary but the only purpose is so that we can communicate with each other. That's the only purpose. Hopefully when you get on stage, you forget that and you just talk to me. As you look forward to what you, you imagine, what you hope to accomplish, what you and your faculty members would impart to these percussion students, what's one or two of the key priorities that you have in mind that you think, you know, this is, this is the mark I want to make uh, as a music educator at Berkeley. We have to be open-minded to the current trends in a business that is always morphing and redefining itself in terms of what those tools will be and what that mindset is for a musician that is walking into this world at this moment. And even that could change in four to six months or 12 months or whatever, right? But we still need to look at it and come up with concepts that will give them the survival skills to go out there and participate in the music culture and the music business. So they have a different challenge than I did because the music business is in a, a little bit of a place of a flux right now in terms of how art and music is monetized and the fact that people consume music differently, which means that our connection to a potential fan base takes on a new shape, right? So, so on one hand, we're learning about performance, music, studying the mechanics of our instruments, learning to express ourselves on the instrument and on the other side of that we are going to look out into the world and figure out what of these skills that are, are available here are relevant to us and what's going to move us into the into that future experience that i'm going to have you know what i mean i do and so it's interesting for me to observe it um, but I think that one of the things that I'm really interested in is having a really hard, close look at what the students need and figure out a way to balance it with what Berkeley already does so that we create a wonderful, full experience that is a balance of history and the future the technical 
and the personal experience of being a musician. You know, because at the end of it all, it's still going to be about you, the person behind the music. You know, the, the notes exist because of who you are. The rhythm exists because of who you are. So it's not only your practice that informs your music, but your life informs the music. So we take a look at not only how we're practicing music, but how we're living life. So there, there's a lot of discussion to have about this. Um, so while, while I have an incredible staff of, of professors that are going to get that technical aspect covered, and a lot of these guys have incredible life experience that they share and they impart, but also uh, at, a, at, a, at a certain time in the very near future, I'm, I'm planning on uh, creating workshops where I want to talk about these aspects of being in the world. You know what I mean? I want to, I want to, I want to talk about the connection, the human connection of being a musician and sharing yourself yeah. in the world and preparing yourself for what that means spiritually. It's not just a job, like I said earlier. I use the phrase life path. Mm. To be a musician is the life is a life path and it is the life of faith right and success is that sort of junction where preparedness meets opportunity so what are we doing preparing people to succeed i suppose All right, well, <laughs> we got some work to do <laughs> uh Omar Hakim, thank you so much for for taking the time to to speak with us today, and uh, and once again, welcome welcome to Berkeley. Thank you so much. Now that we've talked the talk, we're going out with the track "Walk the Walk" from the Omar Hakim Experience's 2014 release. We are one. If you're interested in Omar Hakim's percussion department at Berkeley, you can find more information at berkeley.edu slash percussion. This podcast was recorded and engineered by Darcy Davis, and I'm Michael Key Feldman. Thanks for listening to Sounds of Berkeley.